Welcome to another episode of The Sea Is Not Yet Full, an addendum to the No Spooks Allowed podcast. <laughs> um, I guess when, I mean, as always, kind of when I come into this, I kind of just think of these kind of on the spot, but I have some ideas kind of beforehand. Um, the idea that I kind of had in my head kind of going into this was more of like the one of like forward progress. Um, I, I guess in, in a sense, uh, the way that I kind of thought about it was like, you can kind of live your life in one of two ways. One, in a sense where you're just le living your life in a sense of like every day is going to happen to you um basically you're gonna watch tv you're gonna wake up you're gonna eat you're going to maybe hear a joke sleep and then pretty much repeat every day the exact same way or i guess the other way would be that you have a goal in mind and that goal is what you want to meet and you'll do things along the way you'll be a normal human you're you'll eat like everyone else you'll aspire to things but in the back of your mind there is a a consistent drive that's pushing you towards something and I don't know, uh, some people don't realize that they have that drive, some people don't realize that they should have that drive, but I, I would say that in a sense where it's like, that between the two, I guess maybe a, a weird way to phrase it would be like, the, I mean, this is a whole like laws of attraction and things like that, I, I guess before I ever heard that concept, I always kind of imagined it as like a, um, like a philosophical rubber band in, in a sense, where, um, your life was going to go in a trajectory, regardless of, uh, whether you were aware of it or not, like you were going to be a statistic in some sense or another, either you were going to be the the tens of thousands that die from the flu or you were going to be the millions that die from cancer or those who die from a car, in a car crash or what have you like you were going to be a statistic now if at one point you then decide to have a drive where you then basically start to look outside yourself and realize I'm going to die one day and what I want to do when I die is have my name live longer than I will in a sense like I want to be useful in some way I want to um, like forward the collective unconscious to a higher new level in either way 
when you make that like decision then at that point you'll start to then encounter the resistance I feel of like the rubber band now at first it'll be very weak and equally just like your strives in the beginning will be very weak like alright like I have some ideas about what I want to do but then as you start to go about it it's like okay um, I guess in order to get there I need to make these changes and these changes are hard and as you start to get it basically the resistance starts to grow tighter and tighter and then at that point you can basically almost feel like there's an active force against you and I feel then there's a point where you change your trajectory enough that whatever that resistance is basically has snapped and then at that point basically whatever the decision was that you were going to do with your life is basically in your hand like that trajectory is like you were spinning aimlessly into uncharted water waters where it's like any possible thing at this point could happen to you um which, in a weird way, kind of, if you were to imagine, like, the idea of, like, Calvinisms and, like, stuff like that, where, like, the entire world is, like, predestined, and then at that point you then have those who don't believe in predestination, things like that. Like, I feel like, in a way, it could work with both of them. I mean, there is, like, the idea that everything would be predetermined, in a sense, but then at the same time, if you are aware of that predetermination and decide to actively work against it, like, I feel that at that point, like, you're kind of taking life into your own hand. Which, at that point, in a sense, would make you more responsible than anyone else. Like, I guess, like, some people like to say the idea that, like, society kind of made someone do these things. And, okay, if society plays a factor in these things, eventually there has to be a point where a person kind of is actively willing these things to occur like and and at that point I feel that you are then more responsible than you would be if someone would say that you're just like a um, a uh, what do you call it a, a factor of your environment in a sense so if you're actively basically kind of foregoing what your um, what society basically made you and deciding to become like a a master of your own destiny then at that point your decisions then get judged harder than anyone else and which at, at that point kind of correlates back to the to the whole like the, the resistance of the whole rubber band what have you and that I think is kind of maybe the, the, the crux of where I'm kind of going with this is just that like you can kind of live your life in the idea that you're going to die the day that you're going to die. That you're going to basically make the decisions that everyone kind of expected you to make. Or eventually you decide, I see what that life is and I'm going to go the other route. I see that in a sea of options, I want to choose my destiny I do not want it to be chosen for me that 
basically on your deathbed you can look into the sky and scream I chose where I am and I did not choose to be here I or I guess in some sense I chose to be here I did not have it thrusted on me I mean this can also work into one of two ways you you can also be a complete momo and not really know how to guide your life and then kind of go in a completely sad trajectory which happens to a lot of people but at the same time like you also have the ability to kind of elevate yourself and move um, one step up and I think that that is kind of like the, the sad case and where a lot of people kind of feel that whatever their lot in life is they're stuck there and I'm not really sure why people kind of believe that like the life is static like the way that I imagine ain't like all forms of existence I, I kind of think of it like um, like a pool of water like you any actions you make basically kind of make waves throughout this entire pool and whether you may not know it now or later like eventually those waves like kind of or I guess like those ripples eventually become waves in a sense so it's like your your actions right now unbeknownst to you is affecting someone I mean you can either think of it selfishly as like you're destroying the planet for someone else in the future or like you're making waves to cure cancer to save someone in the future like either way like one of your actions is basically affecting things that you yourself may not be aware of so when you consider the idea that like you're going to create actions in any which way or form then at that point think of the pool as a quadrant of like different possibilities you can go at any point of the pool wherever it's at and nothing is stopping you besides the resistance of the water and basically you just have to swim against the water and eventually you can get anywhere that you want it doesn't necessarily mean that when you get there that side of the pool isn't like 400 feet deep and then you could potentially drown at any moment that is a peril of choosing where to swim at any point within this pool is like you are within the safety of where you started sure but wherever the destination is it can be completely perilous and it is up to your own choosing to basically to decide if you're willing to take those risks um, but at the same time if you take those risks and then at the other end you can basically say like you've learned how to swim you learned how to basically float within this like endless sea so it's like nothing is theoretically stopping you from just right now packing your bags and like moving to like Australia nothing is like stopping you from like packing your bags and moving to England like if you find that type of lifestyle appealing you can basically at any point just start over like you can decide that you can move wherever you want like these things are all options that are out there on the table for you these don't need to be just dreams you kind of 
like think about like oh wouldn't it be nice to live there like you can always do these things now the adjustment between hey if you saved up like a million dollars and then moved versus just starting from scratch can be like a definitive like difference in the experience but either way nothing is stopping you from basically like working towards things and I guess like with that then comes the to me then like the the, the next aspect of this where it becomes like the forward progress of ideas where essentially ideas remain or, or like basically suffer um, the same fate of evolution as we do and we have a choice to kill ideas and not project them forward into um, the next generation but for some reason we have this weird drive to preserve things that should have died a long time ago and there's I guess in a sense it just like kind of how I mean like me and uh, not spooky kind of talked about the idea where it's like uh, like evolution and the survival of the fittest in a sense like, like we're using like foreign aid in, in a way is basically kind of um, I don't know I, I guess kind of undermining any of those ideas of like evolution in a way because you're propping up things that technically should have died off um, or, or at least in a sense not necessarily should have died off per se but maybe in a sense um, created a different form of life and I would say that like similarly like for some reason maybe it's because we have a vast amount of ideas and or I guess technology to preserve ideas is that we don't seem to let it go and it's like the past hundred and thirty years has basically taught us that things like communism and socialism does not work without bloodshed in any form or fact or, 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 or like facet like it, it's like either you have like Pol Pot in like Cambodia you you have like um, everything that's occurred like within Russia you like the the holodormer you have like the, the the great leap forward you have like all these things and it's like within all these things like these ideas should have definitively proven to anyone that these ideas do not work but yet they maintain some weird forward trajectory that at that point basically has invaded like our way of living like they it, it is like a a a virus embedded within us our altruism in a sense basically has become a cancer within our collective unconscious like if you think about the concepts of like socialism and also the concepts of 
um, like uh, communism. Th these are all technically like altruistic in nature, where it's like the idea that basically like um, that every person deserves like like kind of like a to have like a place to stay, like uh, the opportunity for food and things like that, like equal access to a lot of things, like to have like a communal like share within all these properties, what have you, like you can get into like different variations of all these things, but like in the end, like they're all like it is based on altruism, uh, like uh, at the very core, whereas like capitalism and a lot of different things basically say like no. Like, unless you produce, you're going to die. So you basically need to find something to sell or to work towards. And at that point, basically lift yourself up. And it's like, you can either sell ideas, you can sell food, you can sell basically services, you can do anything. But either way, you are the master of your own fate. And how you get there is up to you. And you have everything under the sun to get you to the point where you can live and equally you can also die at your own decision without any intervention but then equally within all these systems i say that that is completely fair it's like nothing is stopping someone else like like all these things are there to help you basically motivate yourself and depending on how motivated you are you can then basically become more successful or you can live an adequate lifestyle. You don't need to basically plunder the whole earth. You can basically live to your heart's content. If you want to go into the middle of the woods and only care about yourself, nothing is stopping you. Equally, nothing is stopping you from basically saving enough money to just move to, say, England or Italy or what have you. That is the beauty, I would say, of capitalism. But then, I would say, inversely, because of our altruism, that you then have these ideas that say no you are being selfish if you think of yourself to such an extent that at that point that you can rise above the norm and instead we should all then attack you and bring you down to our level until we can all supposedly eventually rise up but that will never occur so then at that point it's like this can like i don't like i don't know how else to i guess maybe articulate the idea but it's just like it's like this sense of like of um like the roads to hell are paved with good intentions is basically the concept of all these ideas that it's like all these ideas that are always trying to basically exact fairness and um basically justice and equity and things like that are always going to lead to terrible things because it's always at the end of who is deciding who gets what and it's like equally in the end if you have this entire system where everyone is inevitably equal then at that point there is no reason to perform more than your ability to do so you can just live basically the status quo life and live a bland existence until the day that you die so once again, within this, you then have the same paradigm that I then brought before, where you can either choose one in which that you decide to go one of great resistance and great adventure, where at that point you can become something later in the future.
and at that point your destiny is at your hand or you can go the other route and basically know that every day is exactly the same and why this milk toast blandness has become appealing to a set of people I do not understand I do not understand why it continues to um, basically be promulgated within our school system I don't understand why it then becomes promulgated within our politics I don't understand why it exists in general it has proven to be faulty it has proven to be a cancer but it must die and it needs to die and to me I feel if anything that is a goal that I will work on until I inevitably die is to prove that these false ideologies are morally bankrupt and equally should have all collectively died off when their time like allotted for them like I can I can go on forever. So I guess with this, um, I will then um, kind of pivot towards um, I, I guess I don't know I, I, maybe just because of the timing of this podcast podcast exists um, a lot of these episodes are going to involve this whole woo flu but the, the thing to me that um, uh, the reason why I was wanting to bring it up is something that I've been thinking about um, today and as of I don't know today, um, like last night, basically it was like there was like nine hundred and seven dead due to the flu, and this is just basically the official numbers. Like, if supposedly they're burning, like cremating hundreds of bodies a day, what have you, that number has to be drastically higher. But even then, that like the official numbers themselves are nearly at a thousand. And according to the CDC, like, from the actual flu, like, 10,000s have died. So you basically have something that under, like, almost global quarantine has killed 10% of the flu that has had no actual quarantine. Like, it's not like we locked down major cities like we do when someone has a sniffles here. So it's like when someone has the the cold at your job, no one is basically forcing them to go to a hospital hospital to be quarantined because of their potential like like diseases. Like not only that, but the potential mortality of the of like what could occur. So but then inversely, like you then have this disease where basically millions of people are which are not even being counted into death toll are dying of starvation 
or dying of just basically just being cremated to death. I mean, you have doctors basically saying that, like, if they don't show any signs of progress, they go to get cremated. So, you have that, like, where it's, like, under such dire conditions, it's, like, this is one-tenth of what is allowed to spread globally untethered. And it's just, like, but then people continue to then put out articles saying, hey, this is not as bad as the flu. But then, if you then go back further, it's like, oh, that 10,000 number that supposedly has been, like, that, that we've been tracking is going back all the way to, like, basically early October. But then, as for the Wu flu itself, we've only been tracking for about 20 days. And in, within 20 days, it's killed, um, essentially nearly, like, 10,000 people. Like, I would say even then, like, if you were to go back, well, that's... October, November, December, most of January, that's at least a hundred days. That potentially, like, let's say if they had to, like, if they were, um, at the finish, like, uh, at the starting line simultaneously, like, if anything, like, at the same trajectory, like, they technically would be neck and neck. So if you, if you were to have the idea that it's like, that's a hundred days between October and January 20th, so uh, theoretically, I'm not going to pull out a calculator, but let's say 90, uh, 31 days for October, uh, what, 30 days for um, November, 92 days at that point when, for December, so then you got about, what, like 110, 112, so there, roughly. Um, so that's what, nearly... I don't know, I guess it would have been 550 at, at that same rate. As of then, plus the 20 days would then make it, what, 650. So, this is all estimated just based on the official number, numbers that, theoretically, that 10,000 would have died from the flu from when they've counted to 650 would have died from the Wuhan flu based on the official numbers, if they both were to be counted from the same start. But yet, once again, so consider that, that, that concept, where it's like, if they both start at the same time, the difference between the both of them would roughly be 350, only based off of the official numbers, and especially considering the fact that even within Sunday, it raised by 90, you can probably say the same amount. I'm not going to pull out my phone right now to look this up. I'm it's just purely guesstimate. Like, let's say right now, just like, let's say, like, I'm just going to go by off of, like, the numbers from Sunday night. It's like, it, it, in that situation, it's like, you, you have something where people continue to downplay and say, oh, it's not as bad as the as like the regular flu but because it's not as bad as the regular flu we should basically open our borders allow this ultra contagious disease in and it's just like these people are so short-sighted and so like uh, it, 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 
to me is basically it has been the most frustrating argument to hear um, from this entire experience is because hey you have something that is being heavily suppressed consistently daily uh, what the actual numbers are because once again from day two people basically have said hey there's about 90,000 people probably infected and then at this point you've had this just dripping of numbers daily where in reality like you don't shut down your entire country for several weeks if it was just a flu it it was obvious way more than that considering based on everyone on essentially the, the insane amount of people dying the, the the insane infectious rate like this is not something this is something beyond just a normal flu like I I, I kind of go back to um, uh, I don't know uh, a, hypothetically let's say in the future um, one may or may not hear of a book um, intellectuals and society being read to them um, but Thomas Sowell, um, the guy who wrote um, Intellectual Society, basically a lot of what he wrote is um, people don't face consequences for saying a lot of erroneous information. And essentially we interpret a lot of, um, we give a lot of credit to people who don't deserve credit just because they appear to be smart. So in a sense, like, um, you have people, I don't know, like, um, who are writing articles, who are journalists and stuff like that, who are basically trying, I mean, I guess like even then, like, it just kind of, like, if you can't think about it in a sense, like, you have the media that is pretty much an organ for the uh, the government where I think they're pretty much going to parrot whatever the government gives them because if not then at that point the government denies access to them and then at that point that there goes all their official sources and what have you so they're pretty much going to parrot the official line hey don't worry things are not as bad because if otherwise, and at that point, like, massive panic would occur at levels that we've not yet seen. Um, so, you have this entire, like, media establishment that has no sense of shame, has no sense of accreditation, has no sense of, um, how would you call it, um, uh, I guess remorse or in a sense, um, backlash for any of the things that they do. 
So then it's like with all these factors in there, they can basically write all these articles downplaying that at that point, hey, it's not that bad. But then once it does get that bad, okay, hey, now that it is that bad, these are things that you should probably do to worry about it. It's like, never mind that I'm the same person that wrote you an article two months ago saying, don't worry, at the time that you could have been stocking up and basically preparing yourself. Now that the disease is here, now I'm going to basically write you a separate set of articles and how you can prepare yourself. And then that way, you can basically give me money on both ends of this insane problem. So, it's like, with, within the book, basically, it kind of describes, like, like, you have people that were, like, in the middle of World War II, basically advocating for Hitler, and essentially saying, like, oh, everything that he was doing was amazing, and that America basically pales in comparison to all the things that Hitler has done, but then it's like, when World War II is over, it's like, these people don't lose their jobs, these people, like, it's like, these people that were basically snobby enough that, like, oh, like, I go overseas, I'm an intellectual, I'm, I'm basically, like, um, one above you, just in a sense, because I, I am travel, I am learned, and at that point, it's like, I, I don't suffer any of the consequences, because I can just basically spew just terrible lies to you, and then basically say that, oh, you know, things are subject to change, it's like, I was only going off of what the the current information was at the time, and whereas at the time being snobby benefited me, now I'm going on the other end and basically playing the sympathetic role of I just didn't know. I go back to that quote of, like, nature has no rules, or has, like, no concern for those who did not know. And it's just like, the, the only person that's going to look out for you is yourself. There's no reason to depend on others to, um, to care for you. Like, at the end of the day... The media, the your, your politicians, are never going to tell you to stock up properly, to pick, to like basically get guns, to protect yourself, to basically like not listen to um, even the media and stuff when it lies to you. Hey, guess what? Like back in like 2001, one of the, the, the whole like media suggestion was to put duct tape on your windows to stop an anthrax attack. Like... Once again, like, how, like, does the media suffer any consequences for, for their lies? Like, the same media that basically espoused the, the, what the government said back in 2001, that, hey, it's safe to go back to New York, and now all those people that went back to New York and then got lung cancer, the, the media doesn't suffer consequences for that. They basically said the exact same thing the government told them, but no one suffered the consequences of basically the lies of telling them that it was still safe, even though, like, the rubble was still basically, like, the soot and everything was still up in the air. It's like, no, the, the government wanted people to go back to fuel the economy because it had been in a standstill for two weeks, so they told everyone to lie, and then everyone went back to work and then got lung cancer afterwards. 
It's like, I, I don't care about the generalities of saying, like, well, not everyone did. Still, a good portion of people still did, and it happened, and no one suffered any consequences as a result. And it's like, how many things need to occur in that situation where it's like, hey, the government can tell you that it's safe to drink the water, and then at the end, basically, you find out, oh, what? Oh, there's, like, contaminants in the water? And not only that, they're going to last forever in my body? Oh, maybe I shouldn't have listened to the government for the past 20 years telling me that the, the, the drinking water is safe. Or even going further than that, just saying, like, oh, the fluoridation in the water, that's cool. Like, basically telling people since, like, the 40s that, like, fluoride is going to benefit your teeth, even though that you can basically, like, the, the, the actual, like, toothpaste itself tells you that you can only have, like, about a pea-sized worth at most before calling the poison control center. But meanwhile, you can drink this entire bottle and then basically suffer, like, no consequences. Like, basically, Danon can just have an entire bottle of just filled with fluoride to sell to your kids. And then at that point, it's like, hey, this company suffers no consequences because everyone basically has been saying the same, like, like erratic lies of saying, like, hey, like, putting fluoride in the water is cool. It's like, they pay no mind to the fact that, like, when you had, like, all these other organizations, like the USSR, basically putting fluoride into the water to intentionally, like, stupefy the, like, the, the citizenry. It's like, oh, it worked. It worked for them. Let's do it here. And it's like, it's like, no consideration. It's like, once again, going back to the same ideas, that, like, these ideas that don't, don't die, where it's like, it's like, they can do it. They, they, they made an entire population basically just suffice and, and willing to no longer question things by basically poisoning them in the water. And then at that point, they do the same thing here, but then instead, they put an entire marketing crew behind it. And then everyone is then at that point considered a rube if they decide to question that. It's like, why is it that basically 48 states in our country have it legalized minus two. It's like, like, I, and even then, it's like if you even were to say like, hey, what is the fluoride in the water? It's not actual fluoride. It's not like basically like, they, it's just like a, like a sprinkle of fluoride within the water. It is basically a runoff of waste that the companies have basically used to strong on the government to allow them. So then at that point they can dump their waste in the, in the water and then say like, hey, a part of that has fluoride in it. So then at that point it's good for your teeth. So, hey, basically absorb all these chemicals because everyone wants to have nice, bright, shiny teeth, but no consideration at all for the fact that if you were to have too much fluoride in your body, then you then start getting fluorosis, which at that point then turn your teeth brown. So, hey, don't mind that catch-22. Everyone just continue to ingest fluoride and think none the wiser. And you you have this, like, basically this, like, FDA, you have, like, the EPA, all these agencies that exist that will continue to lie to you, and then they'll suffer no consequences for their lies. And then at that point, people then at that point left with their pants down when the actual situations occur to them. It's like, I don't, like, I don't consider myself to be a interesting voice or a unique voice, what have you. But I do consider that I am at least not going to lie for the sake of, uh, placating some form of political correctness. 
like at the end of the day what I am concerned about is basically absorbing information and then at that point projecting it out there as what I perceive to be the truth now a hundred years from now I could be proven wrong but I would say right now I doubt it I doubt that I will be wrong if anything I'm pretty sure that you'll find a book 100 years from now that is just like oh through FOIA requests that like here's all like this government suppression of information it's like it, it's, it happens in any other point it's like it's happened in any major significant point of our existence within the United States that at that point it's like if you were to research it, you find out that the government basically has outright lied to you and done all these things, and then at that point, it's like, it's unless you do your due diligence and start studying it, that you ever find out about it. So it's like, how many times does the government need to lie to you before at that point you start basically kind of getting suspicious about who those in power are? It's like, I mean, you can study the media, like, the media itself only takes about 10 minutes before you can ever find a contradiction within it. It's like either they contradict themselves within their own writing or they contradict themselves within the same time period before commercial breaks. Either way, everyone who is out there is lying to you in some form or fashion, either because they want your votes or they want your views, but in the, in the end, they're still lying to you. I am not profiting from this in the slightest. I'm only basically no different than you, just a citizen who is upset and angry and essentially like discontent with essentially how the status quo is now um the um i guess a daily disclaimer uh, i'm not advocating for any uh, revolution murder or any form of violence i'm not advocating for any form of um like i don't know uh, tyranny or or coup I am not depressed, I am not suicidal, I have no suicidal ideation, I am completely content. Um, so, there's that disclaimer again. Um, but yeah. You only have one life to live. And within that one life to live, you can choose to live it however you want. You can choose to be a passive rube, or you can choose to go against the grain and enjoy hardships, and enjoy failures, and enjoy your life at least. It is easy to have a life of just Twinkies, and basically soft pillows, and essentially no alarms, no surprises, no hardships, no form of stress. That life is easy, and anyone can do it. I mean, you don't need that much money for that form of life. You can live that life with basically for 10 hours of work a week. And with that, you can basically just sleep your life away, just watching Netflix and getting fat forever. Or you can do something with your life and basically, it's like, it is not going to be a peaceful life. But at the end of the day, it's like, you, your rewards will come to you in spades.
I don't know. Um, I, I guess how to end this, but I do want to uh, kind of go back to like. Um, I don't. Know, I, I guess kind of de-escalate the the conversation. Um, so the the country that I chose last week was a uh, Christmas Island, which I found kind of interesting. Um, Christmas Island was smaller than I imagined. Um, it was, I don't know, it, it was, I think it was like, I believe there's like a thousand four hundred people living in the entire island. I think that the, um, when you watch the videos, you can kind of pretty much realize that there's not that many people there. Um, it is, there's a lot, like the entire island is very scenic and things like that, like, um, pretty much every angle in which any of the tour videos guide is pretty much looks like something like could eventually just be like a Windows background. Um, the to me the the one thing about that is that like I can't imagine living in that type of life where everything is dependent on it being traveled by air, um, as in like doesn't seem to be that much of uh that many like uh farms within the actual um island and not that many like wildlife within the island itself to sustain yourself so i kind of feel that if anything were to go wrong but at that point like you are going to be the last of anyone's concern um so with that, I then want to then pivot to Wuhan. Um, I, I want to look at Wuhan this week as like, um, I, I don't remember if I've already kind of like suggested this previously or things like that. It's like, cause there's a lot of episodes or it's a lot of times that I record and then at that point don't save it or I guess I don't upload it. So I'm not really sure if I'm repeating myself right now. But yeah, for this week, um, Wuhan is the, the country in question. Um, I am more interested in seeing what Wuhan is prior to the flu outbreak. Um, it, you can watch a lot of footage now of like where people are like, hey, I'm the only one in this massive like metropolis. And it's like, I'm curious to kind of see how it was prior to the disease outbreak and then at that point like I don't know just having that weird realization that like hey like I don't know two months after this footage there's gonna be no one on the street like it's gonna be like you're gonna notice iconic like places from just videos like oh like that's where that guy just like projectile vomited blood or like, hey, this is where the guy had like a full-blown seizure in the middle of the street. Or like, hey, this is like where like that guy basically got shot at. Um, but yeah, I like either way. Like, it's just it, it would be fascinating to observe the city before it went downhill. 
Um, I guess with that, I am going to uh, call it. Um, I'm not saying. I'm just saying. record this earlier and earlier but I keep getting distracted more and more as you can hear I'm just adjusting uh, trying to get closer to the mic trying to get closer to you put myself inside you become one with you and then be forever everlasting together in this vast ocean of space and time floating endlessly together as we stare into the abyss so I feel that I should just kind of get on to reading because it Part of me just kind of wants to keep talking about um, the whole flu situation, which I don't know, that I recorded a few days ago, but um, there was more news that came out. To which, at that point, we'll probably just talk about in the actual podcast. But um, yeah, life is weird. Uh, maybe we live in interesting times. Is that a Chinese saying? Let's look it up. Do, do, do. Yep. According to Wikipedia, may you live in interesting times is supposedly um, a translation of a Chinese expression. Alright, so we were on paragraph 77 on page 9. 
how some people adjust. Not everyone in industrial technological society suffers from psychological problems. Some people even profess to be quite satisfied with the society as it is. We now discuss some of the reasons why people differ so greatly in their response to modern society. First, there doubtless are... Okay, this is kind of maybe um, a weird like spelling. First, there doubtless are different are differences in the strength of the drive for power. Individuals with a weak drive for power may have relatively little need to go through the power process, or at least relatively little need for autonomy in the power process. These are the docile types who would have been happy as plantation darkies. Okay. <laughs> in the Old South, we don't mean to sneer at the plantation darkies of the Old South. To their credit, most of the slaves were not content with their servitude. We do sneer at those people who are content with servitude. Okay. So, after it's been three... Oh, uh, I guess this is my fourth reading at this point. This is probably where it's going to start veering in the odd direction. Uh, some people may have exceptional drive in pursuing which they satisfy their need for the power process. For example, those who have unusually strong drive for social status may spend their whole lives climbing the status ladder without ever getting bored with that game. People vary in susceptibility to advertising and marketing techniques. Some are so susceptible that even if they make a great deal of money, they cannot satisfy their constant craving for the new shiny toys that the marketing industry dangles before their eyes. So they always feel hard-pressed financially even if their income is large and the cravings are frustrating. frustrated. Some people have low susceptibility to advertising and marketing techniques. These are people who, are, who aren't interested in money. Material acquisition does not serve their need for the power process. People who have the medium susceptibility to advertising and marketing techniques are able to earn enough money to satisfy their craving for goods and services, but only at the cost of serious effort, putting in overtime, taking a second job, earning promotions, etc. Thus, material acquisition serves their need for power process, but it does not necessarily follow that their need is fully satisfied. They may have insufficient autonomy in the power process. Their work may consist of following orders, and some of their drives may be frustrated. Example, security aggression. We are guilty of oversimplification in paragraphs 80 to 82 because we have assumed the desire for material acquisition is entirely a creation of the advertising and marketing industry. Of course, it is not that simple. Some people partly satisfy their need for power by identifying themselves with a powerful organization or a mass movement. 
An individual lacking goals or power joins a movement or an organization, adopts its goals as his own, then works towards those goals. When some of the goals are attained, the individual, even though his personal efforts have played only an insignificant part in the attainment of the goals, feels through his identification with the movement or organization as if he had gone through the power process. This phenomenon was exploited by the fascists, Nazis, and communists. Our society uses it too, though less crudely. For example, Manuel Noriega was an irritant to the U.S. Goal, punish Noriega. The U.S. invaded Panama effort and punished Noriega, attainment of goal. Thus, the U.S. went through with the power process and many Americans, because of their identification with the U.S., experienced the power process vicariously. Hence, the widespread approval of the Panama invasion. It gave people a sense of power. We see the same phenomenon in armies, corporations, political parties, humanitarian organizations, religious or ideological movements. In particular, leftist movements tend to attract people who are seeking to satisfy their need for power. But for people, for, for most people, identification with a large organization or a mass movement does not fully satisfy the need for power. Another way in which people satisfy their need for the power process is through surrogate activities, as we explain in paragraph 38 through 40. A surrogate activity is an activity that is directed towards an artificial goal that the individual pursues for the sake of fulfillment, that he gets from pursuing the goal not because he needs to attain the goal himself. For instance, there is no practical motive for building enormous muscles hitting a little ball into a hole, or acquiring a complete series of postage stamps. Yet many people in our society devote themselves with passion to bodybuilding, golf, or stamp collecting. Some people are more, are more other-directed than others, and therefore will more readily attach importance to surrogate activities simply because the people around them treat it as important or because society tells them it is important. That is why people get very serious about essentially trivial activities such as sports, or bridge, or chess, or arcane scholarly pursuits, whereas others who are more clear-sighted never see these things as anything but surrogate activities that, that they are, and consequently never attach enough importance to them to satisfy their need for the power process in that way. It only remains to point out that in many cases a person's way of earning a living is also a surrogate activity, not a pure surrogate activity since part of the motive for the activity is to gain the physical necessities and for some people social status and the luxuries that advertising makes them want. But many people put into their work far more effort than is necessary to earn whatever money and status they require, and this extra effort constitutes a surrogate activity. This extra effort, together with the emotional investment that accompanies it, is one of the most potent forces acting through the continued development 
and perfecting of the system with negative consequences for individual freedom see paragraph 131 especially for the most creative scientists and engineers work tends to be largely a surrogate activity this point is so important that it deserves a separate discussion which we will give it in a moment paragraphs 87 through 92 in this section we have explained how many people in modern society do satisfy the need for the power process to a greater or lesser extent but we think that for the majority of people the need for the power process is not fully satisfied in the first place those who have an insatiable drive for status or who firm who get firmly hooked on a surrogate activity or who identify strongly with a movement or organization to satisfy their need for the power in that way are exceptional personalities. Others are not fully satisfied with surrogate activities or by identification with an organization. In the second place, too much control is imposed by the systems through explicit regulations or through socialization which result in a deficiency of autonomy and in frustration due to the impossibility of attaining certain goals and the necessity of restraining too many impulses. But even if most people in industrial technological society were well satisfied, we, FC, I'm not sure what FC stood for, um, would be so opposed to that form of society because, among other reasons, we consider it demeaning to fulfill one's need for power through surrogate activities or through identification with an organization rather than through the pursuit of the real goal. The motives of the scientists. Science and technology provide the most important example of surrogate activity. Some, some scientists claim that they are motivated by curiosity or by desire to, be, to benefit humanity. But it is easy to see that neither of these can be the principal motives of scientists. As for curiosity, that notion is simply absurd. Absurd. Uh, most scientists work on a highly specialized problem that are not the objects of any normal curiosity. For example, is an astronomer, a mathematician, mathematician, or an entomologist? Man, I do not come prepare for this. Um, curious about the properties of yeah this is I'm not there's no way <laughs> um isopropylotrimethylmethane you know I'm just gonna look up what this is cause I don't know if this is like rubbing alcohol or a bomb uh let's see I saw Okay, that's half of the word. And then let's see. Try. Met. Methane. I don't know, I kept off freaking. Um. Okay, uh, so this also pulls up people discussing this uh, curious book. 
between the manifesto, which reason, which was reasonably interesting, and I noticed twice that he mentioned, I stopped, yeah, there's no way, is there anything interesting that can be concluded from this? It looks like a made-up name at first, but it's reasonable trivial name for 223-trimethylbutene. From reading this, sorry, this is kind of like just me, um, reading this whole thing. Um, it doesn't appear this is an actual word, um, but at the same time what it mostly resembles is I guess um, just a part of I guess adjectives within gasoline or um, the explosive or the potential explosive bits within oxygen supposedly I don't know this is what some random Google group forum uh, proposed but yeah um, in the future I'm just gonna say I don't know ASAP because I'm not going to butcher this fake word any further supposedly he says it twice so ASAP you'll hear shortly of course not only a chemist is curious about such a thing and is and he is curious about it only because chemistry is his surrogate activity is the chemist curious about the appropriate classification of new species of beetle no that question is of interest only to the entomologist and he is only interested in it because entomology is his surrogate activity if the chemist and the entomologist had to exert themselves seriously to obtain the physical necessities, and if that effort, um, exercise, if that effort exercise their ability in an interesting way, but in some non-scientific pursuit, then they wouldn't give a damn about the ASAP or the classification of beetles. Suppose that the lack of funds for postgraduate education had led the chemist to become an insurance broker instead of a chemist. In that case, he would have been very interested in insurance matters, but would have cared nothing about ASAP. In any case, it is not normal to put into the satisfaction of mere curiosity the amount of time and effort that scientists put into their work. The curiosity explanation of for scientists' motives just doesn't stand up. The benefit of humanity explanation doesn't work any better. Some scientific work has no conceivable relation to the welfare of the human race. Most of the archaeology or comparative linguistic, for example, uh, what? 
Uh, some scientific work has no conceivable relation to the welfare of the human race. Most of, yeah, there should have been a comma somewhere. Uh, some other area of science presents obviously dangerous possibilities, yet scientists in these areas are just as enthusiastic about their work as those who develop vaccines or study air pollution. Consider the case of Edward Teller, who had an obvious emotional involvement in promoting a nuclear power plant. Did this involvement stem from a desire to benefit humanity? If so, then why didn't Dr. Teller get emotional about other humanitarian cases? If he was such a humanitarian, why did he help develop the H-bomb? As with many other scientific achievements, it is very much open to question whether nuclear power plants actually do benefit uh, humanity. Does the cheap electricity outweigh the accumulating waste and the risk of accident? Dr. Teller saw only one side of the equation. Clearly, his emotional involvement with nuclear power arose not from desire to benefit humanity, but from a personal fulfillment he got from his work and from seeing it put to practical use. The same is true of scientists generally. With possible rare exception, their motives is neither curiosity nor a desire to benefit humanity, but the need to go through the power process, to have a goal, a scientific problem to solve, to make an effort, research, and to attain the goal, solution of the problem. Science is a surrogate activity because scientists work mainly for the fulfillment they get out of the work themselves. Of course, it is not that simple. Other motives do play a role for many... Let me back up a line or two. With possible rare exception, their motive is neither curiosity nor a desire to benefit humanity but the need to go through the power process to have a goal, a scientific problem to solve, to make an effort, research, and to attain the goal, solution of the problem. Science is a surrogate activity because scientists work mainly for the fulfillment they get out of the work itself. Of course, it is not that simple. Other motives do play a role for many scientists. Money and status, for example. Some scientists may be persons of the type who have an insatiable drive for status, see paragraph 79, and this may provide much of the motivation for their work. No doubt the majority of scientists, like the majority of general population, are more or less susceptible to advertising and marketing techniques and need, to, and need money to satisfy their craving for good and services. Though science, science is not a pure surrogate activity, but it is, in large part, a surrogate activity. Also, science and technology constitute a power mass movement, and many scientists gratify their need for power through identification with this mass movement. See paragraph 83. Uh, thus, science marches on blindly without regard to the welfare of the human race or to any other standard, obedient only to the psychological need of the scientists and of the official and corporation executives who provide the funds for research. Uh, the nature of freedom. We're going to argue that the industrial technological society cannot be reformed in such a way 
as to prevent it from progressively narrowing the sphere of human freedom. Because, But because freedom is a word that can be interpreted in many ways, we must first make clear what kind of freedom we are concerned with. By freedom, we mean the opportunity to go through the power process with real goals, not artificial goals, of, of surrogate activities and without interference, manipulation or supervision from anyone, especially from any large organization. Freedom means being in control either as an individual or as a member of a small group of the life and death issue of one's existence, food, clothing, shelter, and defense against whatever threats there may be in one's environment. Freedom means having power, not the power to control other people, but the power to control the circumstances of one's own life. One does not have the freedom if anyone else, especially a large organization, has power over one. No matter how benevolently, tolerantly, and permissively that power may be exercised, it is important not to confuse freedom with mere permissiveness. It is said that we live in a society, in a free society, because we have a certain number of constitutionally grant, guaranteed rights. But these are not as important as they seem. The degree of personal freedom that exists in a society is determined more by the economic and technological structure of the society than by its laws or its form of government. Most of the Indian nations of New England were monarchies, and many of the cities of the Italian Renaissance were controlled by dictators. But in reading about how these societies, one gets the impression that they allowed far more personal freedoms than our society does. In part, this was because the lack, they lacked efficient mechanism for enforcing the ruler's will. There were no modern, well-organized police force no rapid long-distance communication, no surveillance camera, no dossier of information about the lives of the average citizens. Hence, it was relatively easy to evade control. As for our constitutional rights, consider, for example, that the freedom of the press, uh, we certainly don't mean to knock that right. It is a very important tool for limiting the concentration of political power and for keeping those who do have political power in line by publicly exposing any behavior on their part, but freedom of the press is of very little use to the average citizen as an individual. The mass media are mostly under the control of large organizations that are, that are integrated into the system. Anyone who has a little money can have something printed or can distribute it on the internet in such ways, but what he says to what he has to say will be swamped by the vast volume of material put out by the media. Hence, it will have no practical effect. To make an impression on society with words is therefore almost impossible for the individual and small groups. Take us, FC, for example. If we have never done anything violent and have submitted the present writing to a publisher, they probably would not have accepted it. If they had been accepted and published, they probably would not have attracted many readers because it is more fun to watch entertainment put out by the media than to read a sober essay. 
even if uh, it says FF uh, even if these writings had had many readers most of these readers would soon have forgotten what they had read as their mind were flooded by the mass of material to which the media exposes them in order to get out our message before the public with some chance of making a lasting impression um okay so i was right in a sense about this is kind of where it goes a little bit sideways so i'm going to preface this by saying we at no spooks allowed and also the sea's not your full um do not condone violence coup or any type of revolution or what have you so this is merely the words of someone um so these are not my words and I disavow them. Uh, quote, in order to get our message bef before the public with some chance of making a lasting impression, we've had to kill people. End quote. Uh, constitutional rights are useful up to a point, but they do not serve to guarantee much more than what might be called the bourgeoisie conception of freedom. Accordingly, the bourgeoisie conception, a free man is essentially an element of the social machine and has only a certain set of prescribed and delimited freedoms, freedoms that are designed to serve the need of the social machine more than those of the individual. Thus, bourgeoisie free man has the economic freedom because that promotes growth and progress. He has freedom of the press because public criticism restrained behavior by political leaders. He has a right to a fair trial because imprisonment at the whim of the powerful would be bad for the system. This was clearly the attitude of Simon, Simon Bolivar. To him, people will deserve liberty only if they used it to promote progress. Progress as conceived by the bourgeoisie. Other bourgeoisie thinkers have taken a similar view of freedom as mere means to collective ends. Chester C. Tan, politi Chinese political thought in the 20th century, page 202, explains the philosophy of Kuo Min Tang leader Hu Han Min. I'm just being messed with tonight. Um, in an individual is granted rights because he is a member of society and his community life requires such rights. By community, who, H-U, met the whole society of the nation. And on page 259, Tan states that the, that according to Carson Chang, Chang Chun Mei, head of the state socialist party in China, Freedom had to be used in the interests of the state and of, and of the people as a whole. But what kind of freedom does one have if one 
can use it only as someone else prescribes. FC, I, he has kept saying FC in this entire time and I have no clue what FC stands for. FC's conception of freedom is not that of the Bolivar, Hugh, Shang, or other bourgeoisie theories. The trouble with such theories is that they may that they have made the development and application of social theories their surrogate activity. Consequently, their the theories are designed to serve the needs of the theorists more than the needs of any people who may be unlucky to live in a society on which the theories are imposed. One more important point one more point to be made in this section. It should not be assumed that a person has enough freedom just because he says he has freedom. Freedom is restricted in part by psychological controls of which people are unconscious and more and moreover many people's ideas of what constitute freedom are governed more by social convention than by their real needs. For example, it is likely that many leftists of the over-socialized type would say that most people, including themselves, are socialized too little rather than too much, yet the over-socialized leftist pay, pays a heavy psychological price for his level of socialization. Alright, so with that we are at paragraph 98 going on to 99. Um, You can, I guess, this area of reading, um, I guess, is starting to veer into the more stereotypical. It still seems a bit restrained, minus that one line, but it's still, like, you can start seeing the inklings there. Um... Besides those two sections, um, I guess a lot of what it pretty much kind of has to say is just that the idea that, like, these people are doing these activities mainly because it is a means to an end, uh, like, either because they view it as a power grab or they view it as like a way to attain stuff that like is being advertised to them so it's never like truly out of just pure like altruism or pure um, selfless needs like you become a scientist and you become like all these positions of power mainly because you are wanting some form of either financial backing or social like status that comes with these positions. Um, I don't necessarily disagree. Um, I, I think that's kind of the, the um, one thing about this book is with the exception of those two sections um, it's there's not really much that you can kind of point to and say I think he's wrong. Like I feel like these are pretty much like um, just an outsider's perspective on viewing um, 
society through a industrial lens, I guess. Um, which at that point I'm kind of curious, because if people are willing to put um, Alexis de Tocqueville as a sociologist mainly because of his stuff, even though most of his work is political, um, I don't see what stops Ted from being almost a sociologist in a way. I mean, neither were accredited as such, so if one is willing to hold Alexis de Tocqueville as such, then at that point, why not, why not Ted? Um, but, yeah. Um, with that, um, we, I will see you on a few days um, when the podcast returns to normal. And then at that point, uh, just remember to look at the footage for Wuhan. And that should be about it. All right.